All right, well, we're there in uh, Isaiah chapter 43, and Isaiah 43 is kind of an interesting chapter in the sense that uh, there's not, there, there's a lot of different things being spoken of, and there's not uh, a concise thread to kind of outline, at least I wasn't able uh, to find one, but there's a lot of different uh, verses that teach a lot of different just good doctrines, but they're not really connected together. Uh, so I, I didn't really have a way to outline the passage except for the fact that there's five things that I just wanted to show you from Isaiah 43 and five different things that we can learn from this chapter. And I want to give you those five things. Um, I don't want to cut out anything from the preaching. We can do it quickly, uh, but, I, but I do want to go to all the references and give you the verses. Uh, so it's just kind of five things we can learn from Isaiah 43. The first thing is found in verse number 1. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says this, But now, thus saith the Lord that created thee. There's this theme in the chapter of Isaiah 43 about God as our creator, but more than that, just the fact that there is a purpose for God creating us. Have you ever thought about, you know, why did God create us? Why did God go ahead and form Adam and Eve? And I know we talk about the fact that Jesus saves us and that even from the beginning, you know, it was planned that Jesus would come and that Jesus would die for our sins. But why did God decide to create a planet Earth and to create all of us? And if you look at verse 1, I want you to just notice again this theme of creation. It says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. So let's talk about the fact that, we're, that, that he formed Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Skip down uh, to verse number 7. Look at verse 7, same chapter. He says, Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Look at verse uh, 15, same chapter. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Look at verse 21 of Isaiah 43. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praises. So notice he talks about the fact throughout this chapter and he just kind of throws it in, you know, just randomly that he's the creator, that he's the one that formed us, that he's our, uh, our creator and that he made us and he formed us. But there's a, a verse that kind of gives you insight into why we were created. If you look at verse 7 again, we read it, but I want you to see it again. He says, even everyone that is called by my name, he says, for I have created him. Notice what he says, for my glory. The Bible says that we were created for the glory of God. And this verse kind of reminds me of a verse in the book of Revelation. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 43, but go with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter number 4, and look at verse number 11. Revelation chapter number 4, and verse number 11. I don't know if I can maybe get one of the ushers to grab me a, a bottle of water, if that would be okay. I'd appreciate that. Revelation chapter number 4, and look at verse number 11. The Bible says this, Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and notice what the Bible says, for Thy pleasure, speaking to God, it says, for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So Revelation 4.11 tells us that we were created, the purpose that we were created was for the pleasure of God. Thank you very much, brother. Uh, we were created for the pleasure of God. And in Isaiah 43, the Bible says that we were created for His glory. And if you go back to Isaiah 43 and look at verse 21 again, Isaiah 43 and verse number 21, the Bible says this, it says, This people have I formed for myself, 
They shall show forth my praise. So you got to understand this. We were created, the Bible teaches, for God's pleasure, to bring Him glory, to bring Him praise, to be able... So today, you know, a, a lot of Christians will, will walk around, including myself, you know, some, from time to time, we will go through times where we are maybe discouraged or depressed, and we are saddened, and we think, you know, what am I doing in my life, and, you know, how am I going to fix, you know, the, the problems in my life, and how am I going to, you know, uh, just feel better about myself, but I believe that a lot of that is attributed to the fact that when we were created... We We were created for a reason. We were created for a purpose. And when we are not living out that purpose, it creates an emptiness in us. And we have to understand that the reason that we were created was to bring God pleasure. And even though there are worldly pleasures out there, even though there are things that can cause us, you know, happiness and joy and, and, and fulfillment, you know, the Bible says that there is pleasure in sin for a season. And even though there are things out there that can kind of please us, those are always temporary. They do not last. They, they bring emptiness and heartache and discouragement in the end because the reason we were created was to bring pleasure to God. And the only way to have a joy and to have a peace and to have this, you know, the, the, a life where you just feel content and you feel satisfied is when you are living a life that brings pleasure and glory and honor and praise to God. And that's what we find in this passage. He says, you were created to bring glory to God. You were, you were formed to show praises to God. You, we were created, Revelation 4.11, for thy pleasure they are and were created. So whenever you go through a time of discouragement or you feel empty or you feel like, I'm not really sure what I'm doing or, or, or why things aren't working out in the way that I think. I just don't have that peace that passes all understanding. And I just don't understand, you know, why things aren't working out in, in, in the way that I think they should work out. You ought to consider this. Is my life bringing pleasure to God? Is my life pleasing to God or is my life pleasing to self or to those, you know, maybe I'm trying to please people around me? Because here's what you have to understand. Sin brings pleasure. Hebrews chapter number 11, for a season. And for a short amount of time, it'll make you happy and it'll make you fulfilled. But it'll run out. And the only, you know, fulfillment in life that will last the entire time that you exist is if you learn to fulfill the reason that you were created, which is to bring God pleasure and to bring Him glory and to show forth His praise. So the first thing we can see from Isaiah 43 is that we were created to bring God pleasure. The second thing that we see in this passage is if you look back to Isaiah 43 and verse 1, there are two, there, there's a statement found in verse 1. If you read verse 1, it says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. And he says this phrase, fear not. And you find this phrase all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. Jesus would constantly tell his disciples and say to his disciples, fear not, be not afraid, don't be afraid. But here in Isaiah 43, you find this phrase twice in the chapter. And he tells you why you should not. Look at the first time he says, fear not. He says, fear not, verse 1, for I have redeemed thee. Now, the word redeem, it speaks of a purchase. It talks about the fact that we have been purchased, we have been redeemed, He bought us, He paid us. Now, here's what you got to understand, okay? And this is salvation. And you'll, another theme you'll see in Isaiah 43 is this idea of salvation and, uh, you know, the Savior, and, and we'll see that here in a minute. But notice what he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. And then he kind of defines what it means to be redeemed by God. He says, 
I have called thee by thy name. Now, I want you to make note of that phrase. He says, I, speaking, God speaking, says, I have called thee by thy name. So he says, I know your name. I've called you by your name because I've redeemed you. And then notice what it means to be redeemed. Thou art mine. He says, you belong to me. I purchased you. And, and, and it's interesting because we belong to God. If you're a believer, if you're saved tonight, you are two times, you know, belong to God. Once because he created you and the other time because he redeemed you. But it mean, what it means to be redeemed is that he called you by name. He owns you. He says, thou art mine. Look at verse 7, Isaiah 43, verse 7. Notice what he says. Even everyone that is called by my name. Now today, you know, we are called Christians. Why? Because we are called by the name of Christ. You know, uh, we belong to him. Now, here's what you got to understand. Go with me to Galatians chapter number 4. Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament. If you, if you get to the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians. Right before the book of Ephesians, Galatians chapter number 4. And look at verse number 9. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9 has kind of an interesting, an interesting uh, verse. And, and I, want to, I want to explain the verse before I, I, before I make comments on the verse. I, I want to just go ahead and say this, and I know you know this. But at Verity Baptist Church, we believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God. We believe it is inspired. We believe it is preserved. We believe that everything... And the Bible is there for a reason. So what I'm going to show you was done on purpose by God. But it's interesting how Paul phrases this verse. In verse 9, he says this. He says, but now. He says, after that ye have been known of God. And then he says this, or rather. He says, you know what? Let me correct that statement. Now, it's the word of God. It's inspired. It's perfect. It's exactly what God wanted him to say and write. And and we believe that. But I think that God's kind of trying to make a point here. Because usually when we think of salvation, we think of the fact that we have uh, been known, uh, you know, that, that we know God. And he says there, after that ye have known God. And so often people say, you know, I was lost in sin and I found Jesus or I was lost in sin and I found God. But notice what Paul says. He says, but now, after that ye have known God. And then he says, correction. He says, let me, let me rephrase that. He said, that's not what I meant to say. And we understand it's inspired. It's preserved. It's what God wanted there. But he's, he's almost making a point. He says, or rather, he says, or rather are known of God. And here's what you got to understand. Salvation is not me knowing God. Salvation is God knowing me. I don't get saved because I know God or I know about God or I'm familiar with Christianity or I'm familiar with the Bible. It doesn't really matter if I know God. What matters is this, and Paul would say this, he'd say, or rather, he says, says, but now after that you have known God, or rather are known of God. And he says that's what saves you. Not when you know God, but when God knows you, when he's redeemed you, when he can call you by name, when he can say, thou art mine. Let me give you another proof. Go to Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter number 7. Matthew chapter 7. In verse 22, we find Jesus kind of giving some insight into the great white throne. And he tells us of the dialogue that will go on at the great, great white throne judgment when God is judging unbelievers and sending them into the lake of fire. In Matthew 7, the Bible says this, Many will say to me in that day, so he's talking about unbelievers. Here's what they say to him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? 
and in thy name done many wonderful works. Now look, doesn't it sound like these people know about God? Not only do they know about God, they're prophesying in the name of God. They're performing works in the name of God. They're casting out devils in the name of God. And he says, he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name or in thy name cast out devils or in thy name done many wonderful works? And notice what he says, verse 23. He says, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. You see that? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So you got to understand, salvation is not, I know God. Salvation is this, God knows me. And that's why Paul would say, after that ye have known, or rather, are known of God. He says, if God knows you, you're good to go. He says, if God knows you, you're saved. If you have came to Jesus Christ and you are known of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is salvation. He says, you have nothing to fear. Now, here's what I want you to do. Keep your finger in Matthew chapter 7. Keep your finger there and go back to Isaiah 43. We're going to come right back to Matthew. Uh, so keep your finger there in Matthew 7. But go back to Isaiah 43 and look at verse 5. So in verse 1, he said this, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. He said, Don't be afraid, because I purchased you. He says, Because I know you. Because I've called you by my name. He said, he said Thou art mine. Now look, notice verse number 5. Here you have the second fear not. So he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And then in verse 5, he says, Fear not. For I am with thee. He says, don't be afraid because I have redeemed you. But then he said, don't be afraid because I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. Look at verse 2. Go go back up to verse 2. Notice what he says in verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. And here you have him saying, look, you should not be afraid because I've redeemed you, because I know you, because I own you. But then he says, you should not be afraid because I'm with you. He says, if you walk through the waters, if you walk through the floods, he said, it will not overflow you. If you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. He said, I will, in Hebrews and in other passages, he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is eternal security. This is the fact that God will never leave. Now, here's what you got to say. Go go back to Matthew, uh, but don't go to chapter 7. Go to chapter 10. Just flip a few pages over. Because here's what you got to say. In the Bible, we are told over and over and over and over and over again to not be afraid. In fact, these two words come up over and over again in the book of Isaiah, in the Gospels, just throughout Scripture. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And here's why God says it. Because we have a tendency to be afraid. Aren't there times when you're fearful? Aren't there times when you're afraid, when you've got, you know, you're waiting for that uh, doctor's report to come back, or you're waiting for that bill that you know you're not going to be able to pay? There are times when we are afraid because of our health or our relationships, because of things that are happening, just, you know, laws are being passed, and, you know, transgenders are becoming normal, you know, just all these weird things are going on around our society, and it causes us to fear. But God says, hey, don't be afraid, and he says, here, why? Don't be afraid because I redeemed you, and then he says, don't be afraid because I am with you. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, and fear not. He says, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Here's what he's saying. The worst thing they can do to you is kill your body. Some people say, well, aren't you afraid that at the great tribulation people are going to come and they're going to cut your head off? Look, the worst thing they can do is kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. 
So Jesus and Isaiah and the Holy Spirit would say, hey, don't be afraid if you're redeemed. Don't be afraid if God is with you because the worst thing they can do, what's the worst thing they can do is take your life. There's a, there's a famous story of uh, Jack Hiles and uh, John R. Rice. John R. Rice is a famous evangelist. And, uh, of course, Jack Hiles is a famous preacher, fundamental Baptist. And there's a famous story of, of them that one time John R. Rice was preaching at Jack Hiles' Uh, church there in Hammond, Indiana, and they, uh, Hammond's not exactly, you know, uh, the nicest town, and they, they stepped out a back door and kind of stepped into an alley, and when they stepped into an alley there, uh, a guy kind of came out of, you know, where, and this guy in, in a hood, and he had a gun, and he grabbed John R. Rice. John R. Rice is a famous preacher, you know, he, he uh, he started the sword of the Lord and all those things. This guy grabs John R. Rice and pulls a gun out and sticks it in his stomach. And he says, give me all your money. I'm going to blow your brains out. And Jack Howell starts laughing. And the guy says, what are you laughing at? And he said, well, you said you're going to blow his brains out, but you put the gun at his stomach. And the guy's just like, you think I'm playing with you? And they said, you know what? You can't scare us with heaven. And the truth of the matter is this. If you're saved, what's the worst thing that someone's going to do to you? Blow your brains out while pointing their gun at their stomach, your stomach. You know, I mean, the worst thing they can do is kill you. And Jesus would say, hey, fear not them which kill the body. So we get so afraid, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? They take your house. They take your car. Your credit gets ruined. You're sick. You say, well, I don't want to be sick. But what's the worst thing that can happen? You die and then you go to heaven. And Jesus would say and Isaiah would say, fear not. Don't be afraid. He said, I have redeemed you. I know you. I am with you. So the second thing we can learn from this passage is why not to be afraid. Let me show you the third thing. Go back to Isaiah 43. Look at verse 3. The third thing we can learn from Isaiah 43 is that we learn about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn about, the, about God. Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 43. Look at verse 3. And uh, this would be good for you soul winners. When you're out soul winning, you might want to make note of this. And sometimes people, you'll talk to people who do not believe in the deity of Christ... And you can show here uh, that the Lord Jesus is God. In Isaiah 43, in verse 3, the Bible says this, I am the Lord, thy God. And I want you to make note of this phrase, the Holy One. Do you see that? The Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Seba for thee. Skip down to verse 14. Notice what he says in verse 14, Isaiah 43 and uh, verse 14. Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer... Notice what he says, the Holy One, I want you to make note of that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, for your sakes I have sent to Babylon and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans who cry is in their ship. Look at verse 15. He says, I am the Lord. He says, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Now, oftentimes people try to say that the Holy One is just a reference to, you know, not that He was God, but that He was the Messiah. But notice in these passages, it's very clear that the Holy One is God. Because in verse 3, He says, I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel. Do you see that? He's, in, in verse 14, He says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. In verse 15, He said, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your king. So it's pretty clear that the Holy One is not just a reference to a man that would one day be the Messiah, but it's a reference to God, to the Creator, to the King. The Lord is the Holy One. Go to Mark chapter number 1. Mark chapter number 1. If you kept your place in Matthew, it's just the next book over, second book in the New Testament. Mark chapter number 1. 
and look at verse number uh, 24. We're doing good on time. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. Mark chapter number 1 and verse 24. Notice what the Bible says. Mark 1, 24. Now, in Mark 1, 24, you've got to understand the context, okay? Jesus is speaking to a man who's possessed with devils, all right? These are demons speaking, devils speaking. Notice what it says in Mark 1, 24. Saying, this is what they said, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? They're speaking of Jesus. Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Do you see that? So there very clearly the devils refer to Jesus as the Holy One. And Isaiah tells us that the Holy One is the Lord thy God. The Holy One is the Creator. The Holy One is the Lord. So it's very, you know, as people say, well, you know, people, you know, there's all these attacks on the deity of Christ. And I need to just preach a sermon on that one of these days. But... People will often say, you know, no one ever referred to Jesus as God, okay? But notice that the devils, I mean, wouldn't you think that the devils would know who God is? I mean, they're not really going to, you know, they're not going to be all impressed with Benny Hinn, you know what I mean? They're going to know when someone's faking it. And these devils that are possessing a man, they see Jesus and they say, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. So we know that Jesus is God from, you know, this is just one example from many examples we could look at because Jesus is the Holy One. But we also know uh, from Isaiah 43, and uh, look at verse number 10. Go back to Isaiah 43 and verse 10. Not only that Jesus is God, but also that there is only one God. And again, this is a good note for uh, you soul winners to take down when you're out there and maybe you talk to a Mormon. Mormons believe in multiple gods. They don't believe that, you know, the God of the Bible or the Book of Mormon or Elohim, whatever they call him, you know, they don't believe that he's the only God. They believe that he is the God of this world, but there are billions of gods of, the, you know, billions of different worlds and universes. And, and if you're a good Mormon, you'll maybe one day you'll become a God yourself. But notice what the Bible says, Isaiah 43 and verse 10. He says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand. Notice what he says. I am he. Now, I'm not going to take the time to develop that. We saw that a few weeks ago, that Jesus would also quote that verse, uh, that, that phrase, I am he. If you do not believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins, is what Jesus said. But here he says, I am he. But notice what he says. Before me there was no God form. Neither shall there be after me. So the Mormons say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, constantly new gods are being formed, and there's just the God of this world, and he's the heavenly father, and him and the heavenly mother are up there having spiritual babies, and that's us, you know. We just can't remember. And, uh, you know, and, and if I can be a good Mormon, then I'll become a heavenly father of my own world. And they believe that there's all these different gods out there. And even, you know, just the, the religions of, of the East, you know, believe in, the, in, in uh, polytheism, multiple gods. But here, the Bible is very clear that there is one God. He says, I am he. Before me, there was no God form. Neither shall there be after me. But notice, this again ties into the New Testament and proves that it's Jesus who is that God. Go to First Timothy chapter 2. Look at verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter number 2. And verse number five, there is one God. First Timothy chapter number two and verse five. First Timothy two, five. And the Mormons will try to, you know, 
be deceptive. They'll say, oh, no, 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 we believe there's only one God. But when you ask them, you know, uh, of, uh, of this, you know, what they're saying is it's, it's just there's only one God in this universe, you know. But there's other gods and others. So you kind of have to, you know, say, well, what about other universes? Well, there's more gods, you know, because they believe there's a God for every universe or every world or whatever they believe. But look at First Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 5. Notice what the Bible says very clearly. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So there's only one way to God, and it's Jesus. Why? Because he is the Holy One. He is. The, he's the mediator. He's the, you know, we're men. There's God, and then there's the God-man. There's the Jesus who was 100% God and 100% man, and he's able to mediate on our behalf. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Go back to Isaiah 43. Look at verse 3. Let me show you one more thing about this, okay? So not only do we know that Jesus is God because he's the Holy One of Israel, not only do we know that Jesus is God because there's only one mediator between God and man, and there's only one God, and, it's, and he's the mediator because he is God. He's God and he's a man. He's a 100% man, 100% God. You say, that math doesn't add up. I get that, but that's what the Bible says. Look at Isaiah 43, look at verse 3. Isaiah 43, verse 3. But there's also this that the Bible says. Isaiah 43 and verse 3. Notice what it says. For I am the Lord thy God. Okay, so he says, I am thy God, the Holy One of Israel. But I want you to notice what it says. Thy Savior. Do you see that? So according to Isaiah 43, 3, who is the Savior? It's God. He says, I am thy God. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, which we already identified as Jesus, thy Savior. Look at verse 11, Isaiah 43. Look at verse 11. He says, I, even I, am the Lord. Now notice what he says. And beside me, there is no Savior. So according to Isaiah 43, who is the Savior? It's the Lord, it's God, who is the Savior. Notice verse 12. He says, I have declared, and I have saved. Okay, so here's the question. According to Isaiah, who is the Savior? And that's God. According to the Bible, who's the Savior? Jesus. So look, if God equals the Savior, and Jesus equals the Savior, then Jesus must be God. Because the only God is Jesus Christ. And he's the one that's called the Holy One. He is the Holy One. He was, the, the devils acknowledged him as God. So not only do we learn about uh, the deity of Christ, but let me give you number four. We also learn a little bit of science in Isaiah 43. Look at verse 16. Isaiah 43 and verse 16. This is a good one for the kids to pay attention to. Isaiah 43, look at verse 16. I love, I love it when you're reading the Bible and you just find uh, science in Scripture and it proves that, you know, God is wiser and, and understands, you know, science more than man. Isaiah 43, look at verse 16. Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, and a, I want you to make note of this phrase, a path in the mighty waters. Do you see that? Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the sea, and a path in the mighty waters. Now keep your finger there in Isaiah 43, but go to Psalm chapter number 8. Psalm 8 uh, and verse 8. I said chapter 8, but there's no chapters in Psalms. There's just Psalms. Psalm 8. That's where I want you to go. Psalm 8. Look at verse 8. Isaiah 43, 16 says, Thus saith the Lord, which maketh a way in the wilderness, and a path in the mighty waters. A path in the mighty waters. Psalm 8 and verse 8 says this, The fowls of the air 
and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. Do you see that? So the Bible says in uh, Psalm 8, 8, that there are paths in the sea. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 16, that there is a path in the mighty waters. Go to Ecclesiastes, chapter number 1. Ecclesiastes uh, is chapter number 1, just a a uh, few books past the book of Psalms there. Ecclesi- <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter number 1. Ecclesiastes chapter number 1, look at verse 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 6, the Bible says this. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits, okay? So Ecclesiastes 1.6 tells us that the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Psalm 8.8 tells us that there are paths of the seas. Isaiah 43 and verse 16 tells us that there are paths in the mighty waters. Let me read for you an article uh, written by a man named Dwayne Gish, who's a PhD, and it's entitled Paths of the Seas, and this is what he wrote. He wrote, Matthew Morey served as a U.S. naval officer before the uh, before suffering an injury in which in, uh, I'm sorry, which forced his retirement, he was then placed in charge of the depot of charts and instruments of the hydrographics office of the Navy from 1841 to 1861. He was a Christian who loved the Word of God. One day, while reading Psalm 8, he was struck by an important truth in the eighth verse. There he read that God had given man dominion over the fowls of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passed through the paths of the seas. He immediately saw the great practical significance of that verse, recognizing that there must be currents of water in the oceans, just like vast rivers, as well as in the atmosphere, according to Ecclesiastes 1.6. With confidence in the accuracy of the Bible, Maury determined to discover the path in the seas and the wind circuits, utilizing the charts and the logbooks he had at his disposal. He did discover and plot many of the wind circuits and currents, such as the Great Gulf Current, 40 miles wide and 2,000 feet deep, that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico in the Atlantic, the Japanese current, the California current, and others. Utilizing this information, the sailing of ships of his day plied these currents and wind circuits, reducing by as much as three weeks the time required to cross the ocean. On a monument erected by the state of Virginia to his memory is found a plaque that reads as follows. Matthew Fontaine Maury pathfinder of the seas, the genius who first snatched from the oceans and atmosphere the secret of their laws, his inspiration, holy writ, Psalm 8.8 and Ecclesiastes 1.6. Isn't that interesting? That a, a man would read Psalm 8 and then discover these wind currents, you know, and, and uh, these currents in the sea, and, 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 and the world would look at that as this great, you know, scientific feat. But it's interesting that the psalmist knew about it, and Isaiah knew about it. And, and Solomon knew about it. And, and there's, it's interesting just in Scripture how there's all these scientific, uh, you know, things that the science never disproves the Bible. Uh, science always just proves the Word of God. 
and the fact that God is wise and oftentimes we're just catching up to God. So that's kind of a little interesting tidbit there that you can learn from uh, Isaiah 43. So when uh, you're homeschooling your kids, you know, in the science time, just go to Isaiah 43 and just read it, all right? And that, that can be, you can have Bible time and science time at the same time. All right, let me give you one last, uh, one last thing we can learn from Isaiah 43. Uh, look at verse number 27. Isaiah 43 and verse 27. There's also a little bit of a teaching here in regards to our sin. We learn about our sin. Notice in Isaiah 43 and verse number 27, the Bible says this. Thy first father hath sinned. Do you see that? Thy first father hath sinned, and thy teachers have transgressed against me. So there's a reference here. And uh, I believe this is a reference to Adam because it says, Thy first fathers have sinned. And there's a little bit of a lesson here in regards to our sin. But before we get into the other verses, just real quickly, go to Romans chapter number 5. Romans chapter 5, and that's a well-known passage. Many of you know it. But let's just look at it real quickly. Romans chapter 5 and verse number uh, 12. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. The Bible says, Isaiah 43, verse 27, Thy first father hath sinned. And he talks about the fact that sin... Uh, uh, our, our first father. Some people think that might be Abraham, but I'm, I believe it's more probably a reference to Adam. There's a doctrine uh, taught out there by the Catholic Church called original sin. And the doctrine of original sin is basically defined as, and this is how they define it, the sin and its guilt that we all possess in God's eyes as a direct result of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. So they basically teach that because Adam sinned, then we have Adam's sin and we have to pay uh, and go to hell and die because of Adam's sin. But I want you to notice in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 that that is not necessarily what the Bible teaches. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 teaches something a little different. If you look at Romans 5, 12, the Bible says this, Wherefore, as by one man. Now that one man is Adam. And he says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So here's what happened. Because of Adam, sin, there was never sin in the world before. And sin entered into the world because of Adam. The Bible says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. And, of course, sin brings with it death. The wages of sin is death. So it says, and death by sin. And then it says this, and so death. Now notice, death passed upon all men. Now notice, the Bible does not say that sin passed upon all men. Do you see that? It says, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. But the only thing that passed on was the uh, death there. It says, and so death passed upon all men. And here's why death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So we do not pay for Adam's sin. The Bible teaches against the fact that, you know, children don't pay for their father's sins. Everybody will pay for their own sin. Now, we do understand that, uh, you know, Adam's sin nature was passed down to us and our tendency to sin was passed down from Adam. And we understand that. But we will not have to pay for Adam's sin. Everyone who dies and goes to hell dies and goes to hell because of their own sin. The only thing that passed upon us was death. But it passed upon us because the Bible says there, for that all have sinned. So notice, it's not just Adam that sin. It's all that sin. Go back to Isaiah 43. Look at verse 25. So he, so he makes this reference in verse 27. He says, thy first fathers have sinned. But before he gets to that in verse 25, he's already given us the cure. He's already telling us, you know, the fact that, uh, it, that we don't have to suffer for Adam's sin. And here's the thing. You don't have to suffer for your own sin. Look at verse 25. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am he that, notice what it says, 
blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. The Bible says that God will not remember thy sins. Go, go with me to Hebrews chapter 8. This is the last reference we'll look at uh, for tonight. Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 12, towards the end of the New Testament. If you get to James, you went too far. Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 12. While you're turning there, I'll read for you out of Psalm 103 and verse 12. The Bible says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Hebrews chapter number 8, and look at verse number 12. Hebrews chapter 8. And verse number 12, the Bible says this, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. The Bible teaches that when you get saved, God, you know, and when you confess your sins to God, even after you're saved, you confess your sins. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's what you got to understand. God literally, now look, we as men, we can't do this. You know, when, when someone wrongs us, we may forgive them, but that, that memory is always there. We can't, you know, let that go. But the Bible says that God has the ability to forget. He says, he says I have blotted out their transgressions and will not remember thy sins. Hebrews 8.12 says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God forgives you of your sins and then he erases the past. He does not remember. And today there are people who teach... You know, there are some people who teach that at the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment that Christians will stand at. Not the great white throne, that's the judgment of unbelievers. But at the judgment seat of Christ, that God, you know, is going to pull out this big screen TV and he's going to show you all your sins and he's going to make you answer for all your sins and say, what were you thinking about right here? And why were you doing that? And why did you go there? Okay, but look, that, that is a false doctrine because the Bible says that God doesn't even remember your sins. And there are some people that even take it as far to teach that at the judgment seat of Christ, not only is God going to ask you about your sins, but he's actually going to beat you, as a, you know, for your sins. He's going to, like, take a stick and just beat the fire out of you, you know, and I don't, you know, because of all the stupid things we've done, you know. But that, it, it's not, you know, consistent with Scripture because the Bible says this, God forgives you and he will not remember. God forgives you and he says, I will remember no more. And, and, and there's something you know, comforting and knowing that I don't have this, you know, dark cloud over me, you know, with God, that I can come to God, I can confess my sins, I can say, God, I've sinned, I messed up, I did this, I did that. But if I confess it to him, he is faithful, meaning every time he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. And when he forgives you, he says, he says, that's in the past. I don't remember it anymore. He says, let's not talk about it anymore. He says, it's not important. You, you bring it up to God and say, God, I'm so sorry, you know, two years ago. And God's just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've, I've forgotten that. You know, and there's great peace in that. That's a great truth that we can learn there uh, from Isaiah 43. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly